What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Adhere to Apologetic Show, wherever you may be, however you may be joining us. Thank you for making us a part of your day. This show, I'm stealing this line from Cosmic Septic, is presented by you um, with your support. You, can, If you like the show, you can support us at patreon.com slash adhere to apologetics. But with that being out of the way, today I'm with uh, the street apologist, Vogue Malone. We're going to be talking all things Calvinism. Vocab uh, has been, I guess, predestined to be the defender of Calvinism for the next hour. So how are you doing, Vocab? Man, I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me, Zach. What's going on? Yeah, man. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, life's normal here. It's hot, but I mean, being in Arizona, I'm sure it's a lot hotter for you. Yeah, well, it's always yeah, it's always it's always uh, pretty hot here, man. Even even our winters are not exactly cold, cold, but it's all right, man. It's all right. It's mainly Phoenix. <laughs> it gets colder when you get out into the desert, you know. Mm. Yeah, like I was telling you off stream, the desert. I'm excited to see the desert in a couple of weeks, and it's like my bucket list just to be out there in front of a bunch of sand. It's just kind of see what that's all like. Yeah. <laughs> Arizona's the right place for that, man. <laughs> so let's let's dive into this. Um, we're talking about Calvinism. Uh, vocab is going to be here defending Calvinism. Um, so just to start off, let's just start with like a basic question in case someone's like, what is Calvinism? So if someone's like, Vogab, you're a Calvinist, like, what does that mean? What, what does it mean to you that, you that you're a Calvinist? Oh, it's a historical name that got attached to a system of thought that many uh, of the reformers uh, believe was biblical. And it's 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 like a lot of things, you know, doctrines get more and more detailed over time and so it's not like nobody had ever looked at those things or thought, of, thought about those things before but you know it's like one at a time in the history of the church what i mean is initially the church was having to deal a lot with uh the nature of christ you know and then uh, uh there's these discussions about the nature of the holy spirit and all these things and um some of the issues that that the reformers uh fleshed out in dialogue or should i say debate especially with Rome, um, did have some precedence, especially in uh, the African theologian Augustine's uh, debate back and forth with Pelagius and other people like that, but they didn't get fleshed out the same way. And so really what happens is Calvin, who was a Frenchman who stayed in Geneva, he put out uh, a book called The Doctrine uh, Institutes of Christ Christian Religion was the name of the book. And it went through a whole bunch of printings. It was really popular, and it was kind of really the first – what we might call systematic theology of the Christian church. Uh, Irenaeus did something somewhat similar, but it wasn't as systematic uh, a long time ago. And so, you know, we see systematic theologies on the shelf all the time now, but it wasn't exactly common. And so you had that. And so that, that understanding of how to interpret scripture, uh, which included things like a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God, really a main main component to the system, a very strong emphasis uh, on the sovereignty of God, his power, his control. Uh, that's that's really key to it, as well as a certain understanding of biblical anthropology, things like that became the kind of be general known as Calvinism. Sometimes people will say reformed theology, but then you get into debates about, well, Lutherans, uh, aren't they reformed? And yet they don't exactly have all the same views as Calvinists on subject X, Y, Z and, and issues like that. And so uh, now here we are, you know, in the 21st century. And uh, um, with the um, advent of the Internet and different things like that, different versions and varieties of Calvinism have sort of seeped out. 
And so it's not as confined to uh, more the limited expressions as it has been in the past. Mainly it's been limited, at, le at least in the European context, to Presbyterians and some Reformed Baptists for the most part, uh, some Anglicans as well. But now here on this side of things, uh, there's sort of what you might call neo-Calvinists. So they don't believe, generally speaking, uh, in paedo-baptism, which a lot of Reformed folks or Calvinists traditionally have. So I'm one of them that don't believe in baptizing babies. And also there's certain polities, meaning your church structure, that I don't hold to. And so some of the old school rock rib Calvinists would be like, well, this vocab guy, he's not really actually a Calvinist because to be a Calvinist, you have to hold X, Y, Z. And so sometimes uh, we might be labeled neo-Calvinists, but it is what it is in the, in the main emphasis or focus where people end up saying they're a Calvinist or not, as far as the terminology goes, usually begins with your view of salvation, of soteriology. And uh, we would say that, of course, it's a biblical view of soteriology, of how God saves, who's in charge of salvation, and it also is a decidedly God-centered view. Now, this is not putting slight on anyone else with any different views. I'm just trying to describe the system uh, and, and that understanding as best as I can. And so that's how I would put it, at least as uh, far as an initial explanation. Yeah, it's definitely. So would you like, would you consider yourself like a five-pointer? You get like total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, uh, perseverance of the saints. And I skipped something. Totally, I skip. Yeah, total depravity, sometimes also called total inability. The U is unconditional election. The L, which is usually the choking point of the system, limited atonement, sometimes called particular redemption. The I, irresistible grace or irresistible calling. P, perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. And so uh, those five things in English, at least, make up the acronym TULIP. And so uh, if you're a five-point Calvinist, you know, you got this thing where you hold to the, the tulip. And the funny thing about it is, is that um, the Calvinists didn't uh, come out one day and be like, hey, we need to, we need to put this in a five-point system. What happens is, as the Reformation rolled along, some folks said, you know, I think we, um, I think we went too hard. I think we went too hard. And so uh, let's, let's, Let's dial it back a little bit. And uh, they had different names for them. Um, and one of the leaders of this was a name. Sometimes I mess up his, his name, Jacobius Arminius. And so sometimes people would describe his followers to his system as Arminians. That's where that comes from. Uh, and uh, they were sometimes called the Remonstrants. I forgot the, the exact way to say it or how it goes. But you can look this up and you'll see what I'm trying to get at. And so they said, here's five points we think that we went too far on. And they came out with five points uh, that uh, were different than what most of the Reformation had been saying and preaching, right? And so as a response, there is a synod, which basically is like an old-school church meeting, where they had five points in response to the five points of the Arminians. And that became known as the five points of Calvinism. And so it's not necessarily the greatest place to start in explaining Calvinism, Mm -hmm. Because it begins immediately with these points of contention that are these distinctives. So I get it. It's just historical. You know, I'm not trying to rewrite history, meaning I get why it's all there. But uh, some people don't even like to start with those at all. And then some people say, well, there's not a point in there that's that's an S, the sovereignty of God. It's not directly explicated in there. And that, that should be there as well. And so there's some views about that. But, but with all that being said, yes, I would describe myself as a five-pointer. Uh, these days, meaning it wasn't always that way. It took me a while to get there, but at the end of the day, I would uh, describe myself as that way. And 
every time I come out with this stuff, I always lose some people. I can't respect it, you know, and that's fine. But I don't, I don't shove it down people's throat. But at the same time, I'm not going to lie about what I think is biblical, you know, mm-hmm. what I think my convictions are. But, but uh, I don't have to, you know, cancel people out. They can cancel me if they want. That's just how it is. But uh, cheers. <laughs> cheers to Calvinism with a pretty good looking mug, man. Yeah, I, I know that's not one of your like predominant. Like you're more into like the Hebrew Israelites and Islam and all that stuff. But I think this is a really interesting thing, and I appreciate you. Uh, talk to me about it. So just to, just to start off, can you talk a little bit about like what got you into Calvinism, like how you got led into Calvinism? Were you all, were you always a Calvinist? Uh, talk about your journey into how you got to where you are today regarding your beliefs in Calvinism. Yeah, no doubt. I definitely was not always a uh, Calvinist or reformed, depending how you want to call it. Uh, <clears throat> I was raised uh, as a believer, as a Christian, as far as uh, my general environment, but it was uh, Pentecostal, Wesleyan holiness primarily mm-hmm. and uh you know heavy emphasis on what what is called pietism things like that um I don't have anything bad to say about it so some people come out of different systems and they just have all these this shade I don't have shade to throw it's not like that but my point is I was not I was raised literally as about as far as you get away from reformed theology you know and in, in being a Christian uh and I remember when I a couple times did hear anything about cows and brought up just a few times here or there kind of coming up um, as I uh, grew my interest of theology, it was all bad. It was basically, Hey, stay away from those people, make sure none of the churches. And I'm not, I'm not talking about my parents per se. I'm just saying people in in my life or my circle, make sure that you're uh, not going to any of those kind of churches, make sure any of the Bible colleges you go to don't have any Calvinists there. And then um, uh, a couple of times I was uh, in different environments. I remember one time I was at a, a coffee shop, we used to hang out and do open mics at and a kid showed up who was Calvinist and he wanted to tell all the Christian rappers. Cause there was a lot of Christian rappers who hung out at this coffee shop. Uh, I know it sounds odd, but it was a real thing over here in Glendale, Arizona called cafe Americano cool place. And he wanted to make sure all the Christian rappers stopped doing altar calls. And what he was saying is that, um, Hey, you know, uh, that's not the gospel. We need to tell everyone they, they don't have a choice anyway. So why should we do altar calls? And this guy was serious. What happens is, he he had embraced immediately sort of what's sometimes called hyper Calvinism. Now, a lot of people look at Calvinists and they say, well, hyper Calvinism and Calvinism are the same thing. But I don't think that's true. And he was also in what you call the cage stage sometimes. And the cage stage is the idea when you first become a Calvinist, you just go wild and want to fight everybody and all this kind of thing. So, well, you know, you get locked in a cage to you. So you're not going to harm anybody. So he was over there saying that. And in, in, uh, he was just really um, aggressive and in our face. And we're just trying to drink coffee, right? You know, and he's all like, why do you why do you keep on doing these altar calls? You know, because, you know, we did Christian hip hop to try to uh, evangelize and stuff. So a lot of times we would have altar calls, things like that. And uh, I was like, yeah, bro, we're just trying to chill coffee. I can see that this is your kick, but just uh, let's just relax. He's like, well, guess what? It was Paul's kick, too. It was God's kick. It was the, it's the Bible's kick. You know, <laughs> so I had all these negative experiences. So it wasn't some, uh, you know crafty clever guy that got me into it and uh even when i went to off to seminary it was at that time it it didn't have any reformed influence with the exception of one professor uh everybody else there embraced as far as the the heavy hitters what's called free grace theology and that's a whole discussion in and of itself so it wasn't that however about a couple things happened at the same time i started taking classes uh on different theological matters including some with wayne grudem and then at the same time there was like one other guy in the class uh, who was a Calvinist. I was not, 
but he was the most interesting guy in the class. So him and I would talk and debate and argue before and after class. And uh, he was a smart Calvinist. And so uh, he was, he was convincing and it was, and it was while I was in an environment where none, no, no, no one else in, in the classes was reformed. And so it was interesting to see the distinction. At the same time, some of the apologists and theologians I started respecting and listening to, I found out later, all oh, these guys are reformed. At the same time, some of the people I started, I was mentoring uh, younger men at that stage. I was young man myself, but I was younger. I was, I was mentoring even younger people. Um, they were reformed. And so even though I was mentoring them, we would also discuss reformed theology. And, uh, and then some of the uh, churches I started becoming involved with, I came and find out later, oh, these are reformed churches. And then some of the hip hop artists I started respecting and liking and listening to, I found out, oh, these rappers are reformed. So all this is kind of happening at once. So I was like, well, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to be reformed. No, one, they're not going to turn me into a Calvinist, <laughs> even though no one was pressuring me. That was just my mindset. So I started reading a bunch of anti-Calvinist books. I got a hold of Chosen But Free uh, by Norm Geisler. And I started like holding on to that for dear life and using those arguments and circling, circling everything and all that it was the second edition one with the arrows on it. And, uh, what would happen is I would go back to reading my daily devotions, especially in the book of Romans. And I felt like it was not exactly what Norm Geisler was saying. And I respect Geisler, you know, it's nothing personal, but I, I eventually had to put Geisler down and uh, sort of metaphorically pick Paul up. Now I know people are going to have a problem with the phraseology. I'll just put things a certain way. And I kind of uh, said, man, I, this is not what I set out to do, but I mean, I uh, it, it was I was kind of it was kind of like uh, I can't help it, you know. I hear <laughs> what it seems like it's saying, and so uh, I didn't come out and be like, "Hey guys, guess what?" And in fact, I'd even written some blogs. I was a blogger uh, this time. Uh, there were sort of anti-Calvinist blogs at that time, right? But then one day I was on the phone with somebody, and they're like, "What?" To something I said, and I said, "What? What? What?" And they said, "Well, you, you kind of sound like a Calvinist." And I was like, "I don't know. Am I?" I didn't even have the terminology fully down. I was like. Well, you're saying X, Y, Z, uh, that's the Calvinists believe that because da, da, da. And I was like, oh, really? I was like, well, then maybe I am. <laughs> it was kind of <laughs> it was kind of like that kind of thing. And, event, and then I was like, man, am I ever going to tell anyone? And then, then I remember I wrote like one blog about John 6. And I, I did a little miniature sermon at this church camp I was at. Uh, and, and basically it was kind of like sort of a little coming out. But again, I wasn't shoving anything down people's throat. I was just trying to exegete different passages. But that led to a debate with the Roman Catholic blogger at the time, and it was all about can you lose the salvation? And so in that debate with him, much like Augustine became more grace-centered in his soteriology as he debated Pelagius, the same thing kind of happened to me when I saw the distinction between like the Roman Catholic soteriology that I saw had similarities that I did not think were biblical with certain aspects of non-Calvinist soteriology. So mm. that kind of helped cement me a little bit more because this was a written debate. So we would do different blogs back and forth. So it was sort of a more, it was a less rhetorical kind of debate and it was very text heavy and stuff. And that kind of cemented it even further. And then, you know, it just kind of went along slowly, but surely. And then it's funny years later, I meet people and they're like, Hey, vocab, uh, you know, those Bible studies you used to do back in such. I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, well, you turned me into a Calvinist. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't, I wasn't trying to. I didn't mean to. Like, yeah, I know. But you just kept on doing these Bible studies over these different things. And and now I now I'm reformed. So I want to. And then there they were there to thank me. So it's just kind of funny. It's like, oh, my bad. I didn't even know that, bro. But uh, uh, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool, though. So uh, that's kind of it's, it's almost been, for lack of a better word, uh, sort of accidental. And uh, now here I am being like, well. What else do you want me to do, you know? And so it is what it is. Yeah, yeah man, man. 
let's see, you got you got 45 minutes left to turn me into a Calvinist. So, you know, you, well, let's just see what happens here. Uh, so when, when you look at, um, what are some of the key biblical texts that you look at? Um, obviously, there's a lot you could probably go into here, but just if you're going to pick out two or three or four, take as many as you want that point you towards Calvinism. Uh, what, what text would you look at? Well, um, the whole biblical framework first. I think it's important to kind of go back and, and look at the whole biblical framework, right? Uh, God creates everything out of nothing, creatio ex nihilo. And this God is, yes, he's all-powerful, but he's also omniscient. And he has a plan in creating. And the Bible talks about this plan, and it talks about it a lot. It's it's all up in the Old Testament. It's all in the New Testament. And the prophecies that he gives to people, which sometimes are essentially promises based upon a covenant, they all depend on him being able to carry out this plan for sure. You know, hey, I've said this. I'm going to bring it to pass. People doubt. Abraham's like, well, I don't see any kids. Uh, they're like, hey, hey, are come over here in my tent. You know, but God had a plan. He was going to do it his way, his time from A to Z. David, always going to have somebody on the throne. One of your descendants is going to be greater than you. This kind of thing. You know, I'm paraphrasing things, but these are these are biblical prophecies. Not just Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, but that as well. Because, uh, you know, you have books of the Bible where it's like, uh, hey, guess what? Israel's wicked. I'm going to use this wicked nation to destroy Israel. And then the prophets are like, hey, that's not fair. Don't worry, I'll destroy them too. After they <laughs> destroy you too, I'll judge them as well, right? Isaiah 10, things like that, Nahum, Habakkuk. So you look at that and you're like, what? And you just see this overarching plan of God. And then you see the fact that Abraham is called out and chosen among a whole bunch of people there in, in what would basically be modern-day Iraq. Then you see the nation he produces being called out and chosen among all the nations of the world. So this idea of God choosing and electing not based upon any precondition that the person had done, that's as old as the Bible. You know, I mean, here he is. And it's funny. Sometimes I see run into people who like really don't have a problem talking about Israel being God's chosen people. But the second you start talking about choosing an election in the New Testament, they're like, well, hold on now. You're starting to sound like a Calvinist. <laughs> like you're, you're, you're all about it when it's Israel being. So the point is the whole kind of biblical narrative, this is the way God functions. And we see this uh, come full bear uh, with Jesus, what he did, how he did it. And then you see Paul say in First Corinthians, God takes glory out of taking these foolish small things to get glory. That's the way he chooses to do it. That's why he's – and then you read Revelation Revelation, and other books like that that have the final picture painted, and it's telling you what's going to happen in the future, exactly how it's going to happen. And so you realize A to Z, God is in control, and he's unfolding a plan in time. And that's really what the covenants are, You know, these different covenants he makes with different people. It happens in time to us, but this God who, who made everything knows everything, and it's simultaneous to him. So he, he sees history as if it's happened. When you're omniscient, you think all true thoughts simultaneously. It's not the succession where God is gathering information. And that's that's the crazy thing about when we try to process the mind of God, which is why uh, the Bible says in Corinthians, like, who can really search that and understand it? Only the spirit of God, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that whole just overarching narrative. Now, if I was going to just go to sort of one place, and this will be the one kind of little chunk of scripture I'll go to. It wouldn't be a verse, although I could do that, right? We could go to a verse. It would be um, specifically Ephesians chapter one in the New Testament. That'd be a place I would go to say, here's where we need, here's a great place to have this conversation. So you can see, you know, 
uh, we're not crazy. We're, there's a reason why we hold to this. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice right away who's doing the acting. Who's the active person there? Uh, we're receiving something passively. And that's this, this whole passage is going to run, run that way. And that's why God is blessed. He's blessed because of his active activity in relationship to this, what this passage is going to discuss. And in the Greek, this Ephesians chapter one is one long paragraph, even as he, so here's getting into why he chose us. Now people, I feel like non-Calvinists, Try to turn these passages around and not make God the active one, make us the active one, and God is responding to our choice. But that's really just not what it says. And I understand people have a fight against us. I had the same fight. But it says, even as he chose us in him. Now, listen to when this, this happened. Before the foundation of the world. So there's this plan of redemption prior to creation. I know this gets tricky because you're talking about chronology before there's time. I understand that. But just putting it in basic parlance going back and saying he chose us before the foundation of the world. So we're not even here yet that we should. So this is this is why, this is what's going to happen. Be holy and blameless before him. And notice, even this little verse deals with the thing, well, if you're just chosen, you can't lose your salvation. Why do we got to live holy? Notice the whole point here, even in verse 4, why did he choose it so we can be holy and blameless before him? So we are going to imitate his character. That's what, what's supposed to happen there, verse 4. Not just sit around and be like, yay, I'm chosen. Verse 5, in love. So people always think about God's power, and they should, because it's he is powerful in relationship to Calvinism because there's an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. But we always neglect uh, – sometimes we neglect the fact that it's done in love. This is out of his his everlasting love, and that's why John in 1 John says, what kind of love is this? In love, he – predestined us now i'm not trying to throw shade but a lot of non-calvinist systems predestination biblically turns into post-destination they they flip around the meaning and it becomes post-destination god ad hoc is like well i knew they were going to choose me that's why i chose them but that's not what the bible says the bible says we love him because he loved us first and all the activity is here on god so the question is who's in control of salvation it's god in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according, that's a Greek word, kata, to the purpose of his will. Notice, he has a purpose, it's for his will, and why? To the praise of his glorious grace, soli deo glory. He gets glory out of it. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, not according to, to our spiritual desires, not according to our own will, according to his gift, this overflowing gift, the riches of his grace. So notice this is like nonstop qualifying it. So it's very difficult to go through Ephesians 1 and I think, and interpret in, 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 in other ways and really be dealing with the text as what it's saying. And it, again, it's not a verse, it's a whole chunk. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Again, he's giving us this gift in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. And so it's revealed in time according to his purpose. Notice that's in there again. This is his purpose, his reason, his plan, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So decided back here, happens over here to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Again, it's just boom, 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 who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
Now, it says all things. The counsel of his will. This is massive, and I just think if we start here, it leaves us in a good place to discuss everything else. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, this brings him glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed, and that's preservation of the saints there, with the promised Holy Spirit. So notice it talks about Father in Christ in the beginning and ends with Holy Spirit. This passage is Trinitarian as well. So the Trinity works together in our salvation. Who is the guarantee? See, these are promises. These are ironclad of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, soli de gloria. So we don't know why everything happens. No person can answer that, but we can say to the praise of his glory mm-hmm. that we can say that God gets glory out of this. If someone says, well, how? We don't always know. We can suddenly speculate. Sometimes we can look at the Bible to give us pointers, but we don't always know. But we do see God is unworking. He is working out a plan that was over here and now is getting worked out in time. And so there's other passages, even Ephesians 2 itself, that gets into biblical anthropology. But just starting there, I feel like if someone wants to do a Bible study, I would I would start there and say, let's just walk through this. And it, it's not to be cantankerous, it's just to say, what is this saying? And uh, hopefully if we see what it's saying, we're like, praise God, you know, he he's a good giver of good gifts. I mean, what else are we going to say about this? Praise God, that's all I got to say. Yeah, man. A lot of really interesting stuff you bring up here. Um, one thing I kind of want to, I'm not obviously this is in a debate because I'm not even like, I'm like, oh, I'm a Arminianist or a moment. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm just kind of figuring this all out. And I'm, I'm here to talk about what I was, and I'm here to figure it out. Uh, I was talking with Dr. Layton Flowers about uh, Ephesians 1, obviously a very prominent non-Calvinist. And he, and when he talks about Ephesians 1, he brings up the point in verse 2 where it talks about how Paul is writing to those who are Faithful, or sorry, in verse one, where to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So when we have this thing like where he predestined us for adoption, he's talking, he's writing, Paul's writing to the faithful, the us, mm-hmm. us is the faithful. So there's no sort of like reprobation or kind of like, um, certain well, that, that's, that's, a, that's in Ephesians too, though. But just, mm-hmm. I mean, we could go there, but what you just said, you're saying there's not reprobation there yet. It isn't if that that thought to, is in Ephesians too. But go ahead. I, I don't want to cut you off. I just want to bring that out. But what were you saying? No, that was like the end of the thought, basically, is he talks about, um, in a very basic sense, uh, trying to relay his arguments. Um, in Ephesians 1, is talking about those who are faithful to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So when we have all this stuff, of course, you're going to kind of see the things you see in Ephesians 1 because it's written to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Right. Well, I mean, why are we faithful? You know, I mean, the reason why we're faithful is because of verse 13. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our her- of our inheritance. So, mm-hmm. yes, we're faithful, but not because we're such great faithful people. We are faithful because he has guaranteed uh, our, our continued to those who are truly believers. He's guaranteed that we remain faithful, that we remain in him. And, the, and also a good question to ask is he if, if someone's bringing out that, well, look, it says are faithful in Christ Jesus. The question is, how do they get in Christ Jesus? Well, the mm-hmm. answer is the rest of this passage. They got in Christ Jesus because God decided they would be in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. That's literally what the passage is talking about. So that's true, but that actually, to me, even further proves the point. This is only to the saints. This is only to the elect, meaning this these realities being described here are only to those inside of Christ. And so there's a very purposeful intentionality with the work done on the cross and the sending of Jesus and the subsequent working out of uh, who will come in and, and who will not uh, in, in dear, dear, over the eras of, of time or whatever. And so uh, it's true. This is to the faithful. 
in Christ Jesus. Why are they faithful? How do they get there? We read the rest of the passage for that. Because notice, what does verse 1 say? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. <laughs> I mean, the, Paul is, starts off saying, hey, the reason I am who I am is because of the will of God. Why didn't Paul say because of my response to his will or anything like that? He's, he makes a causative element right away. Paul, apostle of Christ, by the will of God. And mm-hmm. the implication as you read the rest of this is, and that's how you all got here too. Every single one of us, you know? So, uh, you know, I understand that. And these arguments could get technical and complicated. And I'm not necessarily a guy who would like really probably uh, debate uh, someone like in a, some kind of format or way. Cause I don't necessarily do that with Christians, but also I'm not like the, the expert on all the ins and outs of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But uh, every now and then it's good to revisit it and say, here's why I believe these things that I believe, you know? Yeah, man. Appreciate you doing this. Uh, so I'm curious because you talked about Ephesians 2. You see this idea of reprobation because I think there's a lot of people who would be like, you don't you don't see reprobation in the Bible. They would claim that. So can you talk about uh, Ephesians 2 and where you see this reprobation? Sure. Well, d- it depends how you're defining that. But I mean, let's let's start off and read what it says here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So outside of Christ, this is their this is their past tense. This is pre being in Jesus. They were dead. And uh, when you are dead, you don't do nothing. Now, I know that people are like, well, look, we were blind too. And then uh, all these things. But uh, I think when we look at this, we, we realize that dead men, dead women, they don't respond. They don't respond. And that's, that's the reason why that's employed. It's not meant to be some literalistic way because it says in which you once walk. And that means to continue into a pattern. Well, dead people don't walk. So you can be like, well, look, dead people are walking. You know, that, that's the point is these are the walking dead, the living dead. They're dead because they don't respond. How are they dead? They're dead in trespasses. They're dead in sins. So these things bind our will. This is the state of, of, this is the state of, of all of us outside of Christ, right, in which you once walked following the course of this world. So notice that's the default mode. So everybody prior to Christ is in that default mode. And to me, that's plenty of good enough description of what it means to be reprobate. Now, if they're meaning reprobate as a permanent state, that's a that's somewhat of a different discussion. But notice here, the default position of people in the world is to be dead in trespasses, in sins, following that pattern. And that's the way they go. And they're ultimately aligned with Satan, following the prince of the power of the air. So the world is bifurcated into those who are in Christ those who are in Adam, those who are with God, those who are in essence with, with the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the way people outside of Christ are described is sons of disobedience. So that inherits of, 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 of Adam is hinted at there. And also sort of the course of the way we go is hinted at there. Sons of disobedience. That's a massive phrase to utilize. Now mm-hmm. do sons of disobedience, uh, do they obey or disobey? They disobey, right? So they're not going to, they're, they're not going to choose God. Everything militates, everything in these first couple of verses militates again, them being like, well, you know, I think I'm gonna choose God today. Mm-hmm. Nah, not unless there's some miracle that happens. And that's why God is the active agent in these discussions. Verse three, among whom we all once lived. So this is the way these dead people lived and the passions of our flesh. So we choose what our heart wants most. Every time we choose what our heart wants most, we choose the number one passion. That's our priority. And when we're outside of Christ, it's never God. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we're by nature. So again, the natural state 
We've inherited how we are, who we are. What were we by nature? Children of wrath. So these sons of disobedience are also children of wrath. They inherit God's displeasure. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Everybody outside of Christ reprobate. That's, that's the position. And here's the big thing. But God. Now, I, I know people are like, well, that's straw manning. But look, it doesn't say anything remotely Wesleyan here. It, it doesn't say anything like it seems like it would need to say. But God seeing our faith. But God responding to our response. Anything like that. It's, it's really the opposite. But God being rich in mercy. So he abounds in this mercy. Mercy is different than justice. Justice is the just penalty we deserve. Mercy is withholding of it. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, believers, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? Made us alive. Who made the dead alive? God. When we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He did the work together with Christ. And that's why Paul can insert in here, by grace, you have been saved. So one of the five cries of the Reformation, right? By grace, you have been saved. And now notice again, these verbs are very specific in the way that they're, that the way that they're um, laid out. You know what I'm saying? This is an that God is actively doing this, like where it says raised up, that's active. And who's the person acting according to the, the grammar of the sentence? The, the person acting is God. Same thing where it says seated. We, we, this is not something we are doing. And raised us up with him and seated us up, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice this is all God-centered. He's saving us to show off who he is. Mm -hmm. He's saving us so that his character can be uh, displayed and, and the glory that, that he truly uh, possesses can be seen somewhat. Uh, the measurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So that that very famous verse that we use against Mormons and everybody else follows on the heels of this discussion prior, and it makes perfect sense within that context when you don't have to leave and go to another passage and say, "But what about this? What about this?" Just follow the uh, the logic of the argument, and it makes it make, really makes perfect sense. For by grace, so by by a gift, uh, the Greek word there is charis, where sometimes you know we see charismatic has to do with the gifts, right? So for by this gift you have been saved. Through faith. So they're showing the instrumentality. And this is not your own doing. Well, what's not your own doing? Certainly it's describing the process of salvation. And there's where a debate, there, a debate does occur in the grammar and the syntax here. But I think uh, that the evidence stands stronger on one side. And I'll explain what I mean here in a second. You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is not your own doing? What is the gift of God? Well, what was discussed just prior? Grace and faith. Grace is first in the sentence, and faith is there as far as uh, the instrumentality of how the salvation occurs. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. The grace is not your doing, but guess what else? You can't skip over the faith. The faith is not our doing. Otherwise, I don't see why we say the grace is not our doing, but the faith is our doing. Mm -hmm. It is the gift of God. It puts it in even further. What's the gift of God? Well, obviously the grace, but the faith as well. 
and it has to do with the conjunction, the way that the sentences join together. And I do think uh, that that you can show this is referring to both of these items. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So notice it destroys man's ability to say, you know, I was always a little more sensitive towards spiritual matters than my neighbor. Or, you know, I've always had a special sense that God was going to. People say stuff like that, and it's a little kind of modicum of boasting. Mm-hmm. No one may boast. Why did you have faith? It is because God gave you that gift as well. We come to him with an empty hand. We bring to the table our sin. That's why it's not a result of any work, including, if you want to put it that way, the work of faith. He, he enables us even to do that. Now, we do it. As it changes our nature, and that's why there's a Reformed axiom, which is regeneration precedes faith, that is controversial for non-Calvinists to hear. And I get that. I understand that. But what else do you do with passages like that? For we are his workmanship, uh, and it's a very interesting word right there. If you look at it uh, in Greek, that's poema, where the word poem comes out of. So it's like this masterpiece that he's crafting. For he has workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God created the whole world out of nothing. It's solely his work, his product. So are we. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And again, for what? For good works, which God prepared before. And even the good works we do are predestined. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. So even as our sanctification is being worked out and we do good work X, Y, Z, as the Spirit moves through us and works through us for his glory, those are prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so we're walking in it. We're, we're, we're doing what our new nature that he's given us, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, enables us to do as the Spirit moves. But notice, even those things are back there and we work it out in time uh as because we're not infinite we don't know the plan we don't see everything right but uh here it happens in real time and so uh you know it goes on when it talks about one in christ in the next passage now if to me that's 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 what i mean by the indication of reprobate because they're they're discussed there now if you mean reprobate is a sense of those who, who are in essence condemned to hell we would go to romans 9 to 11 for that but i'm not sure what you're trying to 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 get at or ask there Nah, man, you're good. You covered everything I was really kind of thinking um, going through that. Uh, so l- let's just talk about, I've seen some questions in the live chat. We won't probably address any specifically, but I kind of get the idea of what people are thinking, kind of with what I said to you earlier, kind of some questions like, but like, Vogab, you're a Calvinist, so so what about this or what about this? So we'll kind of go through some of those. And I think one of the most predominant ones is, um, but if you're a Calvinist, there's no free will, so I can just do whatever I want, right? Because God just predestined it, right? So so, so what do you think when someone's like, well, I'll just go crazy and go party and drink and do all this stuff because it's just, I guess, that that's God's plan for my life. He predestined it. How, how do you look at that? Well, I try to uh, sort of cut that off at the pass as we went through Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 so people can see that God doesn't save us sort of just to save us and put us up, you know, on his heavenly mantle as trophy pieces of his grace or anything like that, mm-hmm. that there is there is something that he predestined us for. And that's good works. And we we walk those out in time. And so that's right there. That's right there in the passage. However, I think it's good whenever those objections come up, because it's an indication you're on the same or similar track as the Apostle Paul. And I'm not saying, you know, oh, me per se, it's like that, but because Paul deals with the exact same issue, right? Uh, you know what I'm saying? If if Paul, if Paul was was saying something different, uh, you know, 
I don't think some of the um, uh, objections that came up, right, would have came up. But I'm going to show you here in a second here. They do come up, and it's it's because of certain things that he said. So uh, let me let me find a particular passage and go to, and I think it helps us see that. We're going to go to the Book of Romans here. Mm-hmm. Going to go to the Book of Romans, everybody. If you could turn there, all right, and uh, we're going to start here in Romans chapter six, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna want to understand what what happened and the prior argumentation that would make Paul's potential interlocutor ask this kind of question. And so we have to look at what preceded Romans chapter six, because of course this is one long treatise or one long thesis or one long letter, depending on how you know, phrase it. And we look and, you know, Paul begins Romans chapter one with these with the greetings talking about going to Rome. And then right away begins with saying, Hey, the right, the righteous will live by faith and God has wrath on unrighteousness. I discussed this Sunday night a little bit on the program, especially Romans one twenty, and uh, that his judgment is righteous upon wickedness. And then he gets into this discussion about the law between uh, Gentiles and between Israelites as well. And then by the time he gets to Romans 3, where he's showing that God is just in all of his wrath towards unbelievers because this includes Jew and Gentile alike. So there's a universal condemnation. It culminates in a classic verse that says, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3, 23. And of course it goes on to the gift of God. Then Romans 4, so it says Abraham is our forefather in faith because he believed prior to any works that he did. He had faith prior, and that's what made him justified. And Paul is banking that upon the specific chronology of the narrative there in the book of Genesis. Then talks about how the same promise that was realized in Abraham by his faith is realized in our salvation. And now we can have peace through God. Romans chapter 5 talks about that because God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's preemptive. He's the active one. That's Romans 5, 8. And then it speaks about something I mentioned a few times. You can be in the first Adam or the second Adam, and that's the rest of the discussion of Romans 5. And then there's this heavy emphasis on salvation through grace. That's what leads Paul's potential interlocutor to ask this question in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So it's like, hey, well, uh, grace uh, it comes out of uh, you know uh, this situation in which we're sinners. So hey, well, now that we're believers, why don't we uh, go on and keep on sinning? But that question only makes sense uh, on a sort of upon a grace-heavy emphasis that Paul has been uh, writing throughout this this narrative in the first place. And of course, the answer is by no means. That means God forbid, no way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And that's part of what baptism is supposed to symbolize and a reality that happens even though it's being worked out in time. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he, he's he's answering that, but notice it makes logical sense because of the grace-heavy message he's been painting in the first place. Verse 5 of chapter 6, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That means new life. We know that your old our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That means prior we were enslaved to sin. Paul's saying now we should not be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We 
we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is what's sometimes called the doctrine of mortification of the flesh. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for, unrighteous, for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And then he continues on with the same thing. So it's like this is a common question when you present uh, the information this way because Paul then has a variation of that question again there in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? So notice it flows, it flows this kind of questioning flows from what he said, and he answers the same way, by no means. And he speaks about why that is the case, and it's very good very powerful and so the idea is no, no, no. That's not how we. That's not how we roll. Um, you know, because uh, even though we are saved by grace alone, we are saved by faith alone. It is a faith that is never alone. Now, the free grace people that I mentioned earlier, they don't like that maxim. I, I think it's a biblically true thing, and that's where it comes into the reality of we we bear fruit, right? We mm -hmm. bear fruit, and I think the Book of First John is instrumental in understanding that and what that looks like as well as other places. And so, uh, no, that's not what we're to do. That's not why we were saved. If that's our inclination, I think we have to examine ourselves as we're instructed to in Corinthians to see whether we're really in the faith, because that's not the heart of a believer. Not to say we don't have uh, places where we go astray and constant struggles, because Paul talks about those as well. And it is true that we go astray. This is These are all facts, but that's different than wanting to do that. So, the question comes out of a presentation of a grace-heavy emphasis of salvation, but Paul already dealt with it. So we have to ask ourselves, if I'm asking this as an objection to what's being said, which side of the argument am I, am I on? Am I on Paul's side of the argument, or am I on the objector's side of the argument here? And does my gospel presentation that I present, would it also lead someone potentially to say the same kind of thing? If not, you have to ask yourself why. Mm -hmm. And I would say the emphasis of grace is not strong enough. That that's that's something that I think we really gotta to wrestle with and make sure again that we're really on the right side of the argument. I'm not saying you're not saying anything like that. I'm just saying that uh, this is uh, something that was dealt with as far back in the pages of the Book of Romans itself. You know, so mm -hmm. so uh, the answer the answer is no, of course. And um, I think uh, I think the heart of the Christian. Is, is is trying to be conformed to the heart of God. And really that's what Romans 12, 1, 2 is about. We're, and there's lots of verses about that. We're being conformed to his image, Paul says in Corinthians. And so we put off that old self and put on the new man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. A lot, a lot of really interesting stuff that you bring up here. Uh, for the sake of time, I'll kind of bring it to another common thing that I think a lot of uh, non-Calvinists wonder about. Um, and that's the idea of reprobation. Um, like it, we we see God as this idea of uh, this all loving being, um, this this guy, this idea of a heavenly Father. Uh, so why, if this if there is a God that loves us, um, why would He create someone just to reprobate them and send them to hell? It seems like kind of like an uh, something an all loving being wouldn't do. Right. Well, I think uh, probably the you know common uh, place to to to. To look at reprobation is Romans 9 through 11 in regards to that question. I think we'll go there. But let me look real quick. So this is 
this is from the the new bible dictionary just to kind of just sort of defend or define i'm sorry rather uh some general idea of what it means to be reprobate mm-hmm. uh, and here's what it says here um <clears throat> uh it is convenient to retain the AV term, that means authorized version, as a heading under which to include words used in the RSV, that's a revised standard, unfit, refuse, trust, disqualified to translate Hebrew and Greek equivalents, which present the idea of divine investigation leading to rejection because of an, era- an, an ineradicable sin. OT prophets compare the sin of Israel to impurity and metal. Refuse, silver, they are called, for the Lord has rejected them, is one example. The Hebrew verb ma'ah is rendered reprobate in the AV, or refuse in RV. Tested and rejected by Yahweh because of ineradicable sin. Uh, Isaiah 122 renders Hebrew sigim by the adjective adakimos, which occurs eight times in the New Testament, with the meaning rejected after a searching test. In Romans 128, the Greek puns the with Adakamos, which may be rendered since they did not see fit to retain God in their minds, he handed them over to an unfit mind, where unfit, reprobate, is also translated a mind void of judgment, means unfit to pass judgment and the active or passive sense because of wickedness. And so it goes on there, but kind of trying to understand the idea. And the idea essentially is those who are passed over from so from a calvinist view okay so Mm -hmm. uh, from a calvinist view those who are passed over in god's selection for salvation right because if some are chosen some are not chosen and so we have to ask yourself well there's a number of ways this could go god could save all he could he could he could save everybody why could he not if he desired just save everybody right or he could save none he could he could save none or he could save some, right? And so what, what we're saying is the biblical message is that God has chosen to save some, but he's not under any obligation to do so. Uh, there's no requirement. No one – he doesn't owe it to us. Otherwise, it's not grace. It's not mercy in the first place. And so those who are who are not called effectively, uh, efficaciously rather, those who are not chosen, those who are not elect – and again, these are all biblical words – those who are not predestination to salvation, God has passed over, and those are the reprobate. And so with that, the question is, are there any you know uh, verses uh, that we would say um, – uh that kind of teach that and i'm gonna i'm gonna uh go to a couple things here uh i got some stuff that i looked at before here but give me a second though to uh to snatch it it's gonna take a second here yeah, you're all good man i'll just do some random entertaining while vocab uh <laughs> I, I can't freestyle like vocab but maybe i can think of something else so that's that's all right man all right so uh the couple passages i would bring out in relationship to this because i understand um it's it can all be very challenging right I, I i respect that and understand that like uh you know we're not trying to deal with these these weighty matters in a cavalier way you know it's tricky you're kind of uh you know in an internet format and you're trying to move along and so something and people are like man that's really heartless but i think the first matter we want to get to is okay what is scripture what is scripture saying oh yeah about this so, so here's here's the first here's one place i would want to go so in first thessalonians in chapter five Paul speaking about there the day of the Lord, right? It goes through and he speaks about this because this was a this is a very big issue at this church here, okay? And verse nine, he gets to this. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Well, this isn't a judgment passage speaking about uh, judgment there. 
And uh, there's this contrast. Believers are appointed to their salvation, and consequently, or the reverse side, all you do is flip it over. What are unbelievers appointed to? They're appointed to wrath. So there's really two destinations, wrath or salvation. We're all foreordained to one or the other. Now, the, the truth, though, is a matter of we don't like that, but both are accomplished without any injustice to anyone, meaning one group of people gets justice that ju they, they, they deserve. The other group of people, which is a much smaller group, they're receiving mercy that they don't deserve. And so unbelievers see this and some Christians, and they see it as a as a, basically something to be upset about. But there we're, we're, we're forgetting that we're all under just condemnation of God. That's sort of the default position. And so here's another place I want to show you. So it's not just, you know, uh, Paul, for example, we go to first Peter. And then we find out what's going on here. Uh, he's talking about they're a special people. He's speaking about sort of the character of the church, who they are and stuff like that. And then uh, when we get uh, to. Da, 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 da. OK, uh, yeah, here we go. First uh, Peter two, eight. He's talking now about unbelievers. So let me start with seven. So the honor is for you who believe, but so here's the contrast for those who do not believe. And he quotes the Old Testament here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. Now, the sentence could have stopped there. It could be done. But instead, it says, as they were destined to do. That is the predestination of reprobation. And again, I understand these are not easy things, but the, qu the question is, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. I, I understand there's people like, well, here's this alternative explanation, and I'm not dissing anyone. I'm not saying anything bad about them. There's people way smarter that, that disagree with me. I get all that. But when I – it's like when I go through passage after passage, this is what sort of drug me into it. It was like I, I could not help it in a way. And someone didn't have to train me or condition me. You know, I try to listen to both sides. I, I remember I listened to this really cool debate that Michael Brown, whom I love, uh, he did this really cool debate where he uh, was both people. So he was the Arminian or the Wesleyan or non-Calvinist, whatever term you prefer. And then he would flip around and he would be the Calvinist. And he debated with himself with both positions and did a really good job. Now, of course, he came out uh, on the non-Calvinist side, right? And so he won the debate against himself as, as a non-Calvinist, right, in, in, in his estimation. But it was really cool that he did that, meaning I try to really hear these things and look at these things, right, and read, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the book, you know, Why I'm Not a Calvinist and all these kinds of things and, and see them. But when I look at passage to passage, it says, well, here's these guys. Why do they disobey as they were destined to do? And the thing is, that's not the only verse like that. So we go to Jude 4, which is similar, and it says this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Now, it still describes their character as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice there in Jude 4, uh, it's actually talking about people who do what someone asked earlier, like where, uh, you know, it's like, hey, we're saved now. Let's just wild out, right? Whatever. So they're not really saved, basically. But notice the emphasis here is this particular thing is what, why I brought this up. Their condemnation was designated out a long time ago. This I'm not saying it's easy to deal with, but it, it's there. So it's in Jude. It's in Peter. We've seen it's in Paul. Then going over to Romans 9, 
that's where it really gets heavy because we we see this whole section that deals with it. And when you get to verse 22, it is heavy hitting. It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? So notice we saw in Ephesians, a lot of this had to do with the display of his glory. And the beautiful thing is we're beneficiaries of, of, of that because when he shows off his grace, he's gracious towards some. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful picture that should make us very humble. But notice here. What if God is going to show his wrath and to make known his power? So he wants to display some of his other attributes. His wrath and his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. And again, it qualifies it prepared for destruction. And, you know, that relates to something all the way back in the Old Testament. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. This is not an unbiblical idea. Paul's like going off and he's like, huh, let me think crazy thoughts here. You know what I'm saying? This is something that 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 goes back far. And look what it says. In order, so this is why, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So notice his, his beautiful characteristics and attributes are displayed uh, differently. You see different things about God towards those who are described as vessels of wrath versus those who are vessels of mercy, right? A Christian hip-hop group, uh, they're reformed, really good stuff, though. I think even non-reformed people really enjoy them, called Beautiful Beautiful Eulogy. Uh, had an album, uh, I believe it was actually called Instruments of, Instruments of Mercy, which had a lot of these similar concepts in a very, really cool artistic way, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom who he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I think there's like, I don't like that passage, at least the one Westerners don't, but, but that's, it's really reality. And so we could go through and look at that because he, 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 Romans nine really hits that, that idea heavily, heavy right there, especially beginning in verse six. And the reason why Paul's even engaging in that discussion is because he's answering this, this, this idea that people had to say, okay, wait, 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 wait. You tell me Jesus is the Messiah. That's what you're trying to tell me now. Okay. Jesus, the Messiah, the wise, most of Israel rejecting him. Paul is saying, no, no, no. So it's a theodicy in a way. Paul is saying, no, no, no. This was the plan of God all along. Let me show you from the Old Testament. Let's go back, way back. Okay, does that? And then says, this is God's plan to do this in this way. And that chunk of Romans 9 through 11 certainly froze from the preceding parts of Romans, but also is this hinge piece to the book itself, this massive pericope that has all kinds of, really, to be frank with you, uncomfortable things that we have to say, what am I going to do with this? And it just brought me to a place where I said, okay, my hands are up. I'm surrendered. I see what it says. Lord, help me to live this out faithfully. You know, it is what it is. And uh, the thing is, this is only some of, these are only some of the passages. But there's, those are some of the places I would go to discuss reprobation. And um, uh, it's a reality, uncomfortable reality. And then someone might say, well, then why evangelize? Da, 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 da. And we can get in that discussion next. Or we could look at something else that you have. Because uh, I, I like to be responsive to the live chat. So it's up to you however you want to flow with it, bro. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the question is, like, how much time you have. Because you were talking about an hour uh, before stream. I don't want to take too much of your time. So I guess we could do an hour, 20 minutes, hour, 30 minutes. <laughs> you have a premiere in, like, what, like 15 minutes? Just skip your own premiere? I don't know. I forget. When's my premiere? I think it's 8.15. So 5.15 in your time. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe we should go for 15 more minutes then. Okay. <laughs> hey, I, mean, I don't have to do nothing in my premiere. You know what I'm saying? It's not dramatic. It's just we're going to do some crazy Islamicize me stuff. But maybe it'd be nice to be in my own chat. So, yeah, maybe 15 more minutes. Sweet, man. All right. Uh, so one of the things um, – there's been a lot of stuff on the live chat kind of just talking about different things about Calvinism. Um, one of the things that 
where do you have you been reading the live chat? Is there anywhere in particular where you want to go? Because there's a lot of different ways we could go. Um, with mm. these last 15 minutes, I have not been reading the live chat, so I'll just have to rely upon you or your your question. What, I guess we'll just have to see what God predestined me to um, say. Yeah. Yeah, um, all right, so let's go. Let's go with this. Um, one question that was was brought up in the live chat was the idea that um, if God and I've seen it from a few different people, it's if God predestined us. Um, to sin, who is responsible for this sin? Um, so that there's that, or you could say if, if God predestined someone to steal, then they, um, is it their fault that they steal? If God predestined, like, why are we responsible for our sin? If God predestined us just to sin, we didn't have a choice in our sin. Um, so there's different forms of that question, but in a general sense, like, how do you look at that? Right. Well, uh, the funny thing is that exact question is also asked in Romans. So again, <laughs> I think it's helpful for us to stop and say where are these questions, uh, where are they coming from, right? Meaning, um, like why, why are they being asked? They're being asked as a logical result of what's being said. So if someone is 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 asking the identical thing that was already asked in Romans nine nineteen, then we say, okay, that means what's being said now is similar to what Paul was saying then. Otherwise, these questions wouldn't be asked because it wouldn't make logical sense. Let me show you exactly what I mean. Romans nine nineteen. You will say to me then. So Paul is saying, here's what you're going to say. And guess what they say? Why does he still find fault? Literally the question that people ask. Like, so we had to ask ourselves, which side of the discussion are you on, ladies and gentlemen? Are you the one being asked these questions as you present the gospel? Or are you the one asking the questions? If you're the one asking the questions, it doesn't mean you're not a believer. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying, why are you over there instead of over here? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Red Rover, Red Rover, come on over. <laughs> come to the other side. You know what I'm saying? Uh, come to the dark side. We have cookies, right? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Exact, different wording, exact question being asked. Mm -hmm. The answer does not comfort people unless they find comfort in this God who is strong and sovereign. But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So why would you make me to steal, God? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, and that is actually where we left off, meaning I read that passage already, verse 22. So you see how this flows logically together. Now, I recognize this isn't easy, but here's the thing. This is where the reality of divine sovereignty and human responsibility uh, come together. Both are true. And so this gets into sort of a philosophical disposition called compatibilism. I recognize that non-Calvinists say, oh, yeah, you just call it compatibilism. It doesn't actually show how it's compatible. Uh, I understand that. And we can go back and forth with all these different things. But what it's saying is that these two things are not at odds. The Bible teaches these parallel tracks of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, yet both are true. And, and we have to recognize uh, that reality. And so uh, the day of judgment, every mouth will be stopped. No one's going to really actually say, hey, God, well, you like made me sin. Because uh, the question is, why did they do it? Well, they did it because that's exactly what they wanted to do. That's why we do what we do. And uh, I know he has problems. You know, I wish Jonathan Edwards uh, took different issues on certain issues of his day. However, he's done a lot of good work on the issue of sort of we follow the the there the, we follow our our highest desire. 
and and that's a very important thing and a lot of a sort of puritan theology as they discuss this stuff and that gets back into something that luther wrote against erasmus the bondage of the will and let me show you examples what i mean in case that's getting a little too confusing acts 237 now when they heard this this is after peter's sermon they were cut to the heart and said to peter and the rest of his apostles well let me skip down a little bit more because 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 i don't know where we're gonna run out of time let me go here uh but uh hold on hold on well we're on the clock here you know yeah 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 uh let me let me let me make sure let me go go the right place okay where did i go got it okay because i'm gonna make sure i get the right one here okay here we go here we go i mean let me let me go back before that a little bit here men of israel this is acts 2 22 hear these words jesus of nazareth the man attested you by god with mighty works and wonders and signs that god did through him in your midst and by the way notice they still didn't believe that shows how it takes a a, a a miracle of regeneration not just miracles external to the person through him in your midst as you yourselves know this jesus delivered delivered up what's it say delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This just lays it on heavy. It could have just said something different here, like according to God's, you know, uh, even just his wisdom, something, but it, it, it's really over the top almost in a way. The definite plan <laughs> and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's interesting. It's showing both. They're lawless men, so they commit deicide, Killed by the hands of lost men, Jesus, and yet it's according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. Well, that's very interesting. The question is, will they be judged? Jesus told Pilate he would be judged. Are you going to get judged? But it's not going to be. It's going to be worse for the people that handed me over to you. I mean, this is a paraphrase of what he said, but he said this to Pilate. It's like, hey, you know, you're going to be responsible, even though you know, wash your hands, whatever you think is, you're not responsible. But it'll be worse for those other guys. <laughs> So you see both things happen. And yet the question is, was this the plan of God? Well, of course it was. Guess what? The early church prays the same way there in Acts chapter 4. So let me let me go here in Acts chapter 4. This is after they're released by the chief priests and all of them. And then uh, they pray for boldness. And look here what they say here. Verse 27 of Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. And they appealed to Old Testament passages to show this. And now watch what it says. Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So this is basically everybody involved, right? Uh, Jude, Gentile, all kinds of people, right? Look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What? It's almost as if part of God's plan includes ordaining these acts for his glory because they got together, conspired. It was an accident. You know, it's not like the last temptation of Christ where Jesus is like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing crucified or the life of Brian or something like that? No, this is what his hand hand shows God's active power. And your plan had predestined to place. Again, it's almost over the top. It doesn't just say one thing. It says two things, and it highly qualifies it. Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Same thing with Judas. Paul's like, hey, it'd be better if you were never born. I know you've got to do it because it's been written about you. But that that man that, gets, that betrays something, it'd be better if you never been born. What does this show? Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. No one's going to be able to say, but you made me do the opposite is true. We see instance after instance where God actually refrains people from sinning, holds them back when they could sin. 
God does not have to put a, a gun to the head and say, go therefore and sin. They are doing what they choose to do, what they want to, out of their limitations within their human nature, meaning they're doing wicked acts as they desire wicked things. God is not to force them to do it. This is what they want to do. So that's why there is human responsibility, and yet God holds them accountable even though that was part of his plan. Now, I do admit – I haven't mentioned this word the whole time. There's an element of mystery to that. I recognize that. I think we should recognize that. But I think we should also recognize these problems are not only for us reformed types. If you believe God knows all things before they occur, which is classic Christian understanding of, of foreknowledge, God knows the future, right? This is something we say. If you believe that, you still have to deal with the fact that before God hit the button, so to speak, on creating the world, he knew everything that would transpire in that world and yet still chose to create that world. You have to ask yourself why. Now, I know the defenses are these different kinds of free will defenses or Molinist versions. I don't think really they fully answer the question because you still have God knowing these things are happening and still going ahead. And it's he's still doing it because of his foreknowledge, because of his understanding of the future before it occurs. Now, that's important to understand. I say all of that because that's why some people end up in open theism. They say, well, the only way we can get God off the hook is to make it where he doesn't know the future because the future is an unknown quantity. God only knows what exists and what's real. The future, therefore, does not exist, is not real, and so God doesn't actually know the future. And uh, I, this is a very dangerous place to be. It's not biblical. It's, it's, it's not just the opposite of Calvinism. It's, it's the opposite of so many clear passages. It's, it's all kind of, Gregory Boyd is into this. And so some people end up in there. Now I don't go around accusing, uh, you know, every non-Calvinist of being an arm of a you know, being a Pelagian and, and being an open theist. But this is why some people go these routes because of these things because we we've all got to face them if we believe God knows everything according to the future. And I understand there's some of the responses. I hear them. I don't think they really get God off the hook the way sometimes non-Calvinists want to get God off the hook. They kind of think, well, on Calvinism, God's on the hook. Well, our system gets them off the hook. I don't think so. But I think God doesn't want to get off the hook for these things. He's saying, this is my plan. This is what I predestined. Boom. And if he did it with Jesus, he did it other places. There's this weird theology where they're like, well, he only does it with the really big things. Mm -hmm. Where's that in the Bible? I don't know what you, I mean, not to be just, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Where'd you, where did you get that from? Because the Bible says, and when you read the, when you read Psalms and Proverbs, it says things like this. He's even and this I'm paraphrasing this a little bit, but he's even selected the roll of the dice or the casting of the lots. That's a, like a really small thing. He's aware of the sparrow and the hares. And Proverbs 16.1, I believe, is the verse says uh, he controls the, the, uh, the, the decisions in essence. You know, you, you can depends how you want to interpret it. But basically what the king does, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So I'm trying to I'm trying to see where people are uh, uh, getting this idea of like only the really big things. And that kind of thing. And, well, you know, he would have found someone else to do it. No, it was Judas who was written of. It wasn't somebody else. It wasn't a generic son of perdition. It was Judas. John 6, have I not chosen all of you yet? One of you is a devil. That's what he says at the end of John 6. And he's talking about Judas. And so you look at that and you're like, man. So I know it's heavy. I know it hits hard. I get all that. But that's why us Calvinists like to grow beards. <laughs> I gotta say, man, the beards probably help you out. They make you look a little bit. You get the beard and the glasses. It makes you look look pretty smart, man. I uh, need a cigar and a dark beard, but the problem is I don't like either of those things. But if I had those, <laughs> then I, what I'm saying would have that much more authority and weight. Dude, if only God predestined it that way, you know. 
Um, he did not predisp- <laughs> he did not predestine me to have a predisposition to like either of those things. So, dude, this has been an awesome conversation. Appreciate you a lot. Um, in case someone doesn't know who you are, how do they follow Vocab Malone? Well, you know, I'm somewhat active on other social media like Instagram. On Instagram, uh, it's just at Vocab Malone. I post theological stuff and little video clips and geek pictures, but I also do some family stuff, which is always dangerous and risky in these days. But I, I, um, uh, it's sort of a mixed bag. So, uh, you know, it's not, it's not as hardcore, just apologetics. As some people might like, but you know, I got these pictures that I take and I got to put them somewhere kind of thing. So there's Instagram. It's a mixture sort of, of sort of everything I'm interested or care about uh, on there, basically. Then on Twitter, uh, usually, which is sometimes a repeat of my IG stuff, but occasionally I'll, you know, do some original tweets, not as big on Twitter, but uh, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then also, uh, of course, the main thing I do, of course, is YouTube. So youtube.com slash vocab alone, uh, put out a lot of content, do a lot of live streams and do a lot of uh, premieres as well and uh, different kind of things. But primarily Hebrewism and Islam dealing with those. But there's a wide variety of things. If you just go in the search bar of that channel, you'll see, wow, there's a lot discussed here from creation to different philosophical questions to Molinism, all kinds of things discussed. Uh, maybe it's one or two videos versus multiple videos when it comes to Islam and Hebrewism. But quite a few things. And I've been able to talk to quite a few people. Sometimes there's audio uploads of, of interviews you can hear. So, you know, you can check those out hopefully you enjoy those and um uh i'm also uh, on facebook just because it's necessary evil i hate facebook but there's sometimes other things i even post there but i don't spend too much time you know debating or arguing or going back and forth i just can barely keep track of my notifications but i am on that as well i'm on tiktok but i'm just messing around there i'm not really utilizing it like a true tiktoker i get that uh it's kind of just every now and then something funny for the kids or something but I am on all those places, and uh, maybe I'll see some of you guys around there. But the main place to check me out is probably in the uh, YouTube uh, live chat during a live stream. Uh, and that's where usually I see you. And during a premiere, which I got one coming up in about two or three minutes. Yeah, man, for sure. Uh, we'll see you over that premiere. Uh, I encourage you guys to go follow Vocab Malone. Uh, I had a thought, but I lost. Oh, I was just going to say, get, do TikTok more, man. I want to I want to see some TikToks. I try. I like it. I get it. I just uh, – sh- so uh, so much to do all the time and stuff like that. So. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, appreciate everyone tuning in. Um, this show is brought to you again by you can support the show at patreon.com slash here apologetics. Follow us at he here apologetics everywhere. Uh, vocab, appreciate your time, man. Hey, no doubt, man. Um, I hope people uh, enjoyed this and can get something out of it. If you want to get some books, here's some small little booklets. Evangelistic Calvinism is one that I like. It's about having a Calvinism that is evangelistic and how Reformed theology relates to the good news. You see, it's a booklet, so that's easy to do. Here's an older one, old school one by Dwayne Spencer, just called Tulip. It's got the picture there of the flower. So notice them. These are nice little easy ones to do. Here's a good one that I recommend by Ian Hamilton called Experiential Calvinism. It's the idea of uh, it being practical as you live it out. Uh, Another booklet. Don't worry, I got one that's actually a book. Classic one just explains the five points of Calvinism. Band of True Trust is where I get a lot of these. And here's one, uh, Back to Basics, Rediscovering the Richness of the Reformed Faith, a little more thick and a little more in-depth in its argumentation. And one I don't have a picture of because I have it digital that I recommend is actually called The Joy of Calvinism. And uh, I think that's a really good one. I've done uh, done a show uh, about that, and it talks about sort of the uh, lesser known things in regards to reform theology people haven't always discussed and talk about. But uh, I hope that uh, people got something out of a day, and thanks for having me on, Zach. Man, keep it up, bro. You're doing good work.
Yeah, man. You too, my brother. Uh, head over to Vocab's premiere. It's actually the countdown is right now. Uh, all right. Have a good one. God bless everyone. God bless. Peace out. Have a great day, man.